This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. I'm in Houston uh, this weekend at the Houston Zen Center, and um, I'm spending part of today uh, in their two-thirds of a day retreat as part of a practice period they're doing. And right now, the Dharma Talk is happening downstairs. Um, <laughs> online from California, uh, where uh, Dojin Emerson, a, a Dharma heir of, of Galen Godwin's, is speaking. So I'm hearing a Dharma talk wafting up the stairs, and I'm sending you a Dharma talk from here. It's not the same Dharma talk. <laughs> anyway, it's a little, dis it's a little disorienting, but um, I will persevere. It's, I'm very grateful that I could be here, actually, and do this talk. Uh, even though I'm not physically with you or physically in, in Austin. And thank you all for coming and, uh, and welcome to those of you who are not regulars. Um, so this talk is about stages or goals in practice. I think that's what it's about. You can tell me at the end whether <laughs> what you heard. Um, and you know, it's a core teaching of Zen that there are no stages in Zen practice and no attainment. And I think, you know, many of you will have heard Uchiyama Roshi's uh, quote of his teacher, homeless Kodo's, you know, famous expression, Zazen is good for nothing, right? Now, there, there are a lot of ways of understanding that statement, but, you know, it's a pithy statement. It kind of points us away from getting something out of practice, out of Zazen. But on the other hand, I think all of us have heard or read or encountered teachings, many teachings that absolutely do talk um, about stages and progress in practice and in meditation. And I'll just take one example because several people have actually asked me about a book called um, The Mind Illuminated by Matthew uh, Kuladasa. And it's a book I've never read, although I've looked at, <laughs> because people ask me about it. Um, and it, it just as, I'm not singling him out, but um, this book offers 10 stages of meditative accomplishment with milestones and transition in between uh, the milestones. And the stage is drawn various traditions of Buddhism, so it's not Zen, strictly speaking. And it enumerates, you know, these goals obstacles, skills for each stage, and mastery, how you know you've got it. And what it teaches is completely legitimate. And it's grounded in instructions on different forms of meditation. And this has been very helpful to some people I know, and it was helpful for me to become a little familiar with it, to just understand how different, you know, the way I was trained initially in Zen meditation is from this kind of step-by-step framework. It isn't, though, it isn't Shikantaza, it isn't Zazen or Zen meditation, which, again, I will state, <laughs> has no objects or goals. We could also consider an, an old teaching, a direct teaching rather than a handbook. For example, the Avatamsaka Sutra, which if, if any of you have ever seen it or, or picked it up, it's a doorstop of a, of a sutra, 1600 pages small print, and it, it represents the Buddha's 
realization of reality upon his awakening. And it's psychedelic, I think, is the best way of describing it in its descriptions of worlds upon worlds of the completely complete interpenetration of all things in reality. And in the last chapter of the Avatamsaka Sutra, the 26th chapter, there are described no fewer than 52 stages of uh, awakening, 52 uh, stages of practice and awakening. And there are many more examples of progress and maps of the path to liberation that I could come up with and so could you. And they can be found both in the early teachings of the Theravada and in Mahayana teachings about the Bodhisattva path of liberating others before oneself or together with oneself. And so, you know, I think at least that the, the contrast between no goals and no objects and no stages and no progress and some of these detailed roadmaps and techniques can maybe be a little perplexing. So now our friend and teacher in our lineage of San Francisco Zen Center, um, Zoketsu Norman Fisher, many of you know, um, he's the former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center um, and has 50 years of Zen practice in his experience. Norman's just published a book of talks, of collected talks that he selected and, and edited to some extent and wrote an introductions to. And this is called, this book is called, When You Greet Me, I Bow. And it's a great collection of wisdom uh, gathered over many decades of practice. The title of the collection, When You Greet Me, I Bow, um, comes from a story about a, a Chinese Zen master who accepts a student and asks him to be his attendant. And he says, the teacher says, from now on, I will teach you the essential Dharma gate. So a year goes by and the student kind of gets a little restless and he complains to the teacher that although he was promised to, that the teacher would, the teacher promised him the essential Dharma gate, he hasn't received any teaching. But the master says, of course, you can probably predict this. The master says he's been teaching him the whole time. And the student doesn't get it. So the teacher says, when you greet me, I bow. When I sit, you stand beside me. And when you bring tea, I receive it from you. That's his teaching. Now, you know, this is very Zen. <laughs> Nothing special. Ordinary, everyday life in relationship. No special teaching either. But this ordinary life, truly nothing special, is rooted in vow and in the triple treasure of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which we could also restate as the teacher, the teaching, and all phenomena, and the community, the Sangha. It's the practice of relationship. Relationship is the operation of reality of no essential permanent self. We find reality in interrelationship. And as I said, it's rooted in vow and it's rooted in zazen. Vow plays out in our commitment to practice in every moment. So perhaps you've experienced that relationship has felt different during these months of pandemic. And as we emerge from so many, many months of isolation and protectiveness, this one particular talk of Norman's um, collection 
jumped out at me since it's an old friend. And the title is Stages of Monastic Life. And I've always liked this talk since I first found it. Um, and I've shared it with others as, you know, copied it, pasted it into an email. Um, and I've read it myself more than once. Um, he first published it in 1997. So it's, it's been around for a long time. And seeing it in the book, I realized that it was what I wanted to share with you all today because, you know, it's about living this ordinary life of vow that, and it, which has stages and we even have goals. But Norman is talking to us on a kind of different level uh, about a vow, a practice, and ordinary life. And so that's what I'm going to focus on today. And you may not, that might surprise you, because from the title, which refers to living in a monastery, right, stages of monastic life, you might think at first, if you encountered this essay, it really doesn't have anything to do with you or us here in Austin or wherever we are living our householder lives. But Norman makes it very clear throughout this essay that he is talking to all of us. So early in the essay, he says, and I'm quoting now, maybe underneath who any of us are is another person, the monastic or monk, who is living, or who at any rate aspires to live, imagines it is possible to live a true and perfect human life. And he says, I believe all of us have this monk in us. However noisy and excitable we are, I think we all have someplace in us a deep longing to live this life of silence and perfection. He says, when we're completely out of touch with it, this life of silence and perfection, we suffer a lot. We run around looking for something we can't seem to find and our lives don't work. And when we are in touch with it, more or less, as we are in a retreat, or even in a few moments of practice, or at the beach, <laughs> or on a long hike, or alone sometimes under the stars, at that time we feel whole. Then we can approach others and the complicated world with a measure of equanimity. End of the quote. So I like very much this idea of the monk inside us. And Norman's thoughts about the stages of this monk's life, the one that's inside. For as he says later, the stages he identifies are a way of describing what happens in a human life and what problems we have. But I'd like to pause for a moment and ask, and I, I will try to see as many of you as I can because I'm kind of limited by my screen too. What comes up for you when you hear the word monk? Or another word that's in use these days, uh, monastic as in a person who is a monastic. I, there seems to be some avoidance of saying the word monk sometimes. Does anybody want to offer anything? Sherry, I see Sherry's hand. You can raise your hand, just wave. I'll try to see you, yes. When monk comes up, I think of isolation. Isolation? You can just call it out. Catherine? A cloistered order. Cloistered order. I see Jose and Karen next. Dedication and vow. Dedication and vow. Um, free from too many possessions. <laughs> free from too many possessions. 
I fail. Go ahead. <laughs> Anyone else? Okay. Let's help. Oh, Bruce, yes. Well, I, I think also just the contrast. Uh, th there's there's an air of deliberateness about it. So it's isolation, but it's someone who chooses to be isolated and to go away from, apart from the world, um, as as opposed to the practice of like like householder practice. Okay, thank you. So I'm hearing, you know, kind of renunciation, separation, withdrawing from the world by choice, dedication. Um, monk comes from uh, a Greek word meaning solo, solitary, which is also interest to be alone, which is uh, one way of practicing um, in withdrawal. So, you know, I don't know if this word then resonates with all of you the way it resonates with me. My use of the word, when I use the word or when the word hits me, I think of a, I do think of a, pra a person practicing in a monastery. Um, whether or not they are lay or priest, right? It's just a person who is living this life in a monastery, and even if only for a time. So some of us cycle through, you know, this formal monk practice of going off somewhere, you know, in isolation, coming back to householder life. And the renunciation part, I think, is a big part. You know, we give up many comforts. We give up, we go to a monastery, we give up privacy choices of all kinds, what we eat, what we do, when we do it, <laughs> when we bathe, when we exercise, it's, it's a, it's a com big commitment. And for some people, and in some traditions, it also means celibacy, although in our particular lineage, it doesn't mean that. And to some extent, practicing certain austerities, right? You don't always, you're hungry. <laughs> Sometimes you're tired. You're often cold. You're often hot. So it's a giving over. Norman believes that monasteries should be open to all so everyone can experience and bring inside themselves the rhythms of the life of renunciation. Because we find freedom in joining the schedule, right? freedom from possessions as well, as I heard, and from embracing simplicity. And if we make this kind of orientation our own, says Norman, then the world itself can be our monastery. The monastery can be in our heart. So how do we, that's the monk within that he's talking about. So I could also ask, what is a monastery? If, if it's not a secluded place in say California <laughs> or someplace like that, if it's in our heart, if it's everyday life, how do we live? Um, and it, it's actually, there is no word in Japanese for monastery. The word that Dogen uses means uh, forest or grove, and I'll return to this at the end of my talk. So Norman actually identifies eight stages, and I'm gonna go through them all. I hope it won't take too long. These stages though are not about mastering meditative techniques or states or obtaining spiritual powers. Rather, they are about practicing with others, which is a fundamental aspect of monastic life in our tradition. The triple treasure that I mentioned before of the teacher, the teaching, and the community, and how this plays out in our lives. And they are, these eight stages, a map of liberation, like all the others. But it's very different from just, you know, the kind of instructions on how to cultivate awareness and non-duality while meditating. So it's a different kind of set of stages. So here are the eight stages. I'll just name them. The first one is the honeymoon. 
The second one is disappointment or betrayal. Third is exploration of commitment. Fourth is commitment and flight. Fifth is the dry place. Sixth is appreciation. Seven is love. And eight is letting go of monastic life completely. Okay, so these are the stages enumerated by a person who's been in it for 50 years and is still in it. Now, I probably don't need to say much of anything about the honeymoon stage. <laughs> the honeymoon stage of anything. <laughs> you know, when we find ourselves in a place, in an activity, or with a person or a group of people, and everything clicks, you know, we're in love, everything feels right, we are in that first stage. And Norman writes about the practice honeymoon, the, the, the monastic honeymoon so brilliantly, I just have to quote him again, and I'm editing a little bit of what he says. He says, we see the people we're living with, or we could just say we're practicing with, as really kind and wonderful. The sounds of the bells, the simple hearty food, the early morning meditation, the landscape, the weather, the peace and quiet, the brilliant teachers and teachings, really nothing could be better. We feel as if suddenly and unexpectedly, perhaps in the middle of a great sorrow, you know, like what brought us to practice, perhaps in the middle of a great sorrow, we turned around in the middle of our ordinary life and found to our amazement, a brand new life. That's the end of the quote. But of course, the thing about a honeymoon is that it doesn't last and it can't, and it's not really supposed to. Right? If we try to stay there, we suffer. So that brings us to the second stage, disappointment, <laughs> right? What happens is that whatever we brought with us to practice, even in a monastery, right? What brought us to practice in the first place or to the monastery in particular is of course still right there, right? So we have this honeymoon and then all the stuff comes back up. And as Norman says, often after the honeymoon, we start to project our inner states and struggles onto the community, right? That's a kind of relationship. And we get disillusioned, or we might get disillusioned by the things that were just so great <laughs> at the start, right? The people, the place, the food on retreats. <laughs> we turn back towards the things that we gave up in order to join the community, to join the schedule. We, we think, I miss those things and the teachings, they get confusing. And we realize we can't fully escape, you know, ourselves, our prior belief systems that maybe we were running from, you know, whether they're religious or something else. And the aspect of disappointment that manifests as betrayal, actual betrayal, is really difficult when it comes in the form of a person, like a Dharma friend in the Sangha or teachers. Norman says about this, about the disappointment of finding out that a person is not what you thought or has betrayed you in some way. Norman says, we're really seeing them stumble and make mistakes. And if we haven't seen it, we've heard about it. Or if we haven't heard about it or seen it, then the teachers are perhaps a little too perfect. Right? Some suspicion creeps in that maybe this is, person is too good to be true. And he adds, of course, all of this, you know, may be true, 
but our sense of outrage or sorrow, I mean, like in other words, the person's behavior may actually really be hurtful, but our sense of outrage or sorrow is based in our initial faith that we had actually found a better way, right, and made, tried to make a commitment to it. And actually, depending on the particular situation, as well as our own past conditioning and trauma, we could be, the community could be, in a really bad, objectively harmful place. So I'm not downplaying the actual harm that can occur when people betray us. And this is a moment when people leave. And Norman calls this a tragedy, when people actually leave practice because of this kind of betrayal and disappointment. What's going on is that even an intentional community founded on awareness and compassion on the bodhisattva precepts is like all other human communities. And Norman vividly says, it's a raging mass of passion, confusion, bitterness, and contradiction, and a state of anything remotely like enlightenment or even a little peace of mind can seem very far away. And then he says, and this is the turning phrase, so we have to acknowledge that the job we've undertaken is much larger than we thought. It's going to take quite a while. And part of what we need to do is to make up our minds that we're really going to do it. We're really going to roll up our sleeves and stay in it for the long haul. One or two or 3,000 lifetimes. And that's the vow of the Bodhisattva vow is to stay to remain. And it has occurred to me as I was going through these stages and, and trying to identify them in my own life, um, it occurred to me that what we have been going through with COVID, which I was going to make into a stage actually, and our politics, this is actually related to or part of this stage. We are disappointed, <laughs> we feel betrayed, and we are really challenged by the circumstances of the last however long it's been, year and a half. And actually, you know, it's really always like this. It's always been, you know, there's always been war, pestilence, hunger, injustice, catastrophes of all kinds. That we haven't had a global pandemic in a hundred years is exceptional. It's not the rule in human history. Or a world war or a global economic collapse or any number of terrible things. Some of us have been living in a bubble for some generations now, actually. So we've been, we feel like betrayed. <laughs> what the pandemic has shown us in part, or at least I'll speak for myself, what it's shown me, is the unavoidable truth of total inter interpenetrating reality. There is no escaping what happens in one part of the world. It happens to us too. And the more interconnected our world gets, the more that's going to be true and, and visibly true. And everything is all things, all at once. <laughs> we can't actually turn away because even if we wanted to, we are all in it, even if affected differently due to causes and conditions. So maybe during discussion, you could tell me if you think the pandemic is stage two or something else. <laughs> so that brings us to the third of eight stages. <laughs> And this one is commitment, right? So he's just said, you know, if we stay, we realize we have a bigger job than we thought and we make a commitment or we recommit after being beat up a little bit. 
And we all feel, maybe all the time, this commitment coming and going, right? So these stages are not necessarily a linear thing, and I'll, I'll emphasize that throughout this, right? They, they, they come and go. You might go back to the honeymoon, just remember it's not gonna last. <laughs> so this is commitment. And, you know, I think it is up for a lot of us right now who are practicing in communities, what is our commitment? as we emerge from pandemic, right? Um, you know, for me, aside from having gotten a little unmoored from the rhythms of person, of in-person practice with actual other people, not just, you know, squares, um, how does our commitment to practice stack up? How does our vow stack up with all the other ones that we have made? Like to our partners, to our marriages, to relationships, to kids, to careers, to friends and family all over the world for many of us. How do we balance now the ability and the call to travel to see family and friends or for work? Most of us have not been able to do that. Some of us have undertaken service to others that manifests in ways other than commitment to formal practice. That might be you know, any number of things for you. So how do we balance all these things? And in this space of considering what our commitment is, people sometimes leave when they should stay or they make commitments that they can't sustain. And I think all of us have been there. We get lost in various ways in all the things that we want to do that are wholesome and, and seem appropriate to the Bodhisattva vow. So Norman uses this to segue into his fourth stage which is that of commitment and of flight. <laughs> and this is a variation on the third, but we are fa when faced with this commitment or having made commitment, we take off. And it's fairly common, in my experience at least, of lay sangha practice, that a number of very committed people who take the precepts as lay people in the ceremony of Jukai sometimes just disappear afterwards, sometimes right away. Like they realize I've taken on too much. I, I can't do this, this is too big. Or after some time, they kind of gradually go away. They sometimes come back too, but there is this, that's an example I think of commitment and flight. And this can happen with priests who train for years <laughs> to prepare for ordination and then something happens. And here are some more wise words from Norman. He says, and this is just generally applicable, I think, we had thought we had this thing figured out, <laughs> but what we hadn't counted on was the fact that there were still a fair number of unopened doors in our heart. And the power of the commitment we are now ready to make and have made is such that the commitment violently throws open those doors and we are shocked by what we find inside. We are humbled by the sheer power of our own human passion. And he's talking about people who, you know, I think he's not, he doesn't speak of identified individuals, but the stories that we all hear, you know, somebody who receives priest ordination and then gets stinking drunk and leaves, you know, the next day or something like that, runs away with a partner and, you know, leaves the monastery in the dead of night, that sort of thing. But as Norman says, we have to give this sudden turn sometimes, the flight, 
we have to give it time. The stage of being undone, even after you've made a commitment, you've taken the vows formally, put on new clothes, he said that stage of being undone in the midst of commitment is critical. If we let time work on this undone self, the one of commitment that we substituted for all the other ones we had before, we can reconstitute and recalibrate all our commitments. And in this phase, we might actually find space for deepening relationships in the Dharma, Dharma friendships, and other, other kinds of relationships. We may undertake new studies and new practices that actually widen you know, our field of practice. And that has been true for me, and it's been true for others I know who were far ahead of me um, in their years of committed residential practice. And maybe in general, we learn to take leave of aspirations and fa fantasies as we go on practicing. And we lose things that no longer are working for us. If we can finally really look at it and say, I'm attached to this, but it, it's not working. So we find a way to keep going. We lose the expectations of how it's all supposed to be and who we are, and we just go on. And then comes stage five. Right? And that's the dry place. And Norman pays a lot of attention to this, and I, I will direct you to read the essay if you're interested, um, because it's an important phase or an important moment. He regards it as the most difficult and unavoidable place if you stick around long enough in practice. He says, it comes up often when we're too settled. We, we, we settle down and then we kind of dry up. We might get bored. We kind of lose our practice edge. We're there, but we're tapped out. We're burned out. <laughs> you know, often we have a position in the Sangha and we're seen as and are actually experienced practitioners, right? We seem to be this you know, stable pillars of the Sangha. And he says, and this is a quote, we have a good grasp of the teachings, or at least we have heard them so often that we seem to have a grasp of them. And then, whether we notice it or not, we strike this dry patch. We can't go back in our, into our old life, it seems, and yet there seems nowhere to go forward to. And we also know that there is no going forward or back on some deep level. And he says, fear can arise. Fear that we are never going to realize the path or that we haven't even yet glimpsed it. We really, this is a place of doubt. Fear of the world we have left behind and fear of what we ourselves have become. And he says, and this is a, a, a place where he emphasizes the recurring nature of these stages, that this place will come again and again. He says, if one is willing to address it, it becomes an opportunity to go deeper, a chance to let go a little more and open up to time's healing power and the love that comes only in this way. So now we finally reached healing and love. If dealt with forthrightly with the help of others, the community, the teachers, we reach a place or we may reach a place of appreciation and gratitude. And this might mean leaving the community for a while, you know, which is a previous stage, or doing something else that's a really big shift. You know, people leave and they get, they take on whole different paths. 
But if we can navigate this stage, we can be together with the Sangha. The Sangha as everyone and everything, not just the particular people in a particular temple or monastery. And be less pulled and pushed by the drama that accompanies all such relationships. This love and healing segues into the sixth stage of appreciation, where again, as at the beginning, we are pretty smitten with everyone and everything. But now, unlike the honeymoon, with some time for practice and for life to work on us, when we love people and things, places, you know, everything that we feel attached to, when we love these things, we don't have to be attached to them. And Norman's words here are powerful, given the losses that, that we have sustained, many of us in the Sangha and everywhere. He says, we know that we will eternally be with these people and that wherever we go, we will see these same people. Right? Wherever we go, we will see these same people. So we don't need to fear or worry, he says. We are willing even to see them grow old or ill or die and to care for them and to bury them and to walk away full of the joy of knowing that even in the midst of our sadness, because we're human beings, even in the midst of our sadness, nothing has in fact been lost. No one has gone anywhere. Only a beautiful life that was beautiful in the beginning and in the middle has become even more beautiful in the end, even to the point of an ineffable perfection. And he says, as we face our own mortality, our own finiteness, that we too will give this gift to our community as we age and die. Um, and this reminded me, uh, this morning as I was looking this over, it reminded me of a story about Isan Dorsey, um, who was dying of, he was a Zen priest uh, who practiced the San Francisco Zen Center and founded the, the Zen Hospice Project. And he himself was dying of AIDS. It was late in his illness and a friend came and said to him, oh, Isan, I'm going to miss you so much. And Isan said, where are you going? reminds me of that story. So Norman says there are in fact no neat stages and there is in fact no ending. The stages are simultaneous, spiraling, overlapping, both continuous and discontinuous. And we can find other stages. Um, Mel Weitzman talked about three. He simplified it to three, right? Resistance to practice, <laughs> no resistance to practice, and the third is we just allow ourselves to be involved with difficulty and we learn how to respond rather than react. And, he's, and this is what Mel says, all three stages are really there together. It's more like seeing practice from three different perspectives. Right? So this stage of the stage of appreciation and kind of acknowledging the way life really is, this is just a different aspect of all these other stages that Norman is also talking about. And I should, I should note that even the author of the book on the 10 stages of meditation, he also says, you know, well, these stages are not necessarily linear. Right. So the stages of the way of monastic life, Norman concludes, right? And um, I should say that uh, 
the seventh stage of love and the stage of leaving are the last thing I'll talk about. But before I do, he says these stages of monastic life are really the stages of the human heart, right? The monk is a person practicing. It's a human being. And we are looking for something that we already have, which is wholeness, whether we live in a monastery or not. But he says, monasteries do help to bring all of this into focus, to bring it to consciousness. And he believes that they should be open to all for at least some period of time because this is important for us to have this grounding to understand our lives in a different way. And he says, it's our heart, the monastery is our heart, and it can be in our hearts, but it takes time and patience and luck and some help, right, from the community and the teachings and the teachers. So how do we reconcile this with the kind of Japanese idea that there is there is no such thing as a built monastery, at least there's no word for it, it's the forest, right? Which is not to say there are no temples. There are things called temples, and there are monasteries with gates, but there's no word that means that exactly the way we have it in English. It's the forest. So I want to turn to Dogen um, at the end here, who actually talks about continuous practice in his chapter of the Shobogenzo called Gyoji, continuous practice, and in Gyoji, which is a very long fascicle, so long it's divided into two parts. Um, he actually speaks about four stages. <laughs> so even Dogen can't resist the stages. And um, actually in, in Gyoji, he, he speaks very poetically as always about life and time and practice. So I'm going to read a translation that I like, which is not um, the usual Kaz Tanahashi translations that we usually uh, turn to. This is what Dogen says. The most wondrous practice within ceaseless practice is not departing from the monastery. Right? Not departing from the monastery, even though, as um, Norman says, you know, we do leave the monastery. We, we let go of the monastery completely. So here's what Dogen says. The phrase, not departing from the monastery, completely encapsulates the expression, letting go of things. Never abandon the ceaseless practice of not departing from the monastery. Do not be blown east and west by the prevailing winds. Even if you don't pay attention to the spring breezes and the autumn moons for five or ten years, there will be the way, the capital W way, that is free from delusions concerning sounds and forms. How one arrives at that way is beyond our ability to know and understand. Those are the no stages. <laughs> you should explore through your training just how precious each moment of your ceaseless practice is. Do not entertain doubts that the practice of not talking may be something vain and meaningless. Ceaseless practice is the one monastery that we enter, the one monastery that we emerge from, the one monastery that is the path left by flying birds, and the one monastery that is the whole universe. Um, and in the, in the uh, edition of the Shobogenzo uh, by Nishijima and Cross, which is one that I consulted for this, it's not, that's not his, their translation, but there are some notes about these four 
stages. So the four stages for Dogen are entering the forest. That's the word is Sorin, Sorin, which is like the groves of trees that the early monks um, you know, practiced in. They would go off and sit under trees and practice that way. So that is the, that is the basis for this idea of the monastery as a forest. And entering it is the, the Japanese word is new. Right, so we, we enter practice, we take our seat. And then we have this thing called shutsu, um, which was uh, just defined as the monastery that we emerge from. But it's glossed in this translation, in this commentary, by getting out of our idealizations. <laughs> we leave the thing that we thought we were entering and we enter the real thing, right? Which we could maybe compare to Norman's stages um, in discussion. And then there is this thing that is the way of the birds, which uh, is read, the characters are read as Choro, which is my Dharma name, but I want to tell you that Choro, that Choro and my Choro are two different things entirely. <laughs> my name means something else. It's just the same sounds. So this Choro is the way of the birds, realizing the path without knowing what's next. We follow the path that we can't even really see. Somehow we know. Just going, just going on. And finally, the fourth one is Henkai, the universe, the universe, the whole universe that is the monastery, the whole Dharma is the Sorin. We can't ever leave the Sorin really because we are always at home in the universe. And really there's no monastery to come or go from. So we completely leave the monastery because we leave the idea of the monastery. We leave the idea behind. So all these things are things that we may experience one after the other or at different times in different ways or parts of some and parts of others. But I, what I appreciate, about, appreciate a lot about this essay is the emphasis on time patience, luck, and help, and the vows that we make and we help each other realize together in relationship, the triple treasure. Thank you very much for, your, for listening. <laughs> Are there any comments or questions, things to bring up? Ah, Jose. Uh, thank you uh, for the great talk, um, Tro, and uh, of course also for turning things uh, upside uh, upside my head uh, a little bit. Because of course, you know, here I am thinking all the time, you know, uh, you know, no attainment, you know, no goal, uh, and at the same time, I hear some examples of attainment and goal and stages, um, and so uh, and so it goes to show you that when just when you think you figured things out, you realize you haven't figured them out at all. Uh, so I really much enjoyed your talk. Um, and so uh, I was wondering if you could uh, expand a little bit more on this um, uh, uh, on this uh, taking up of Jukai and uh, what can go on afterwards. Uh, would you say that the different, uh, say, stages of, uh, of post-Jukai are similar to the stages of a monastic, or uh, are there similarities and differences? That's a great question. Um, yeah, because, you know, if you if practice in Zen, um, there's there are these apparent hierarchies, right? There are 
teachers and there's priests and there's people who have taken the precepts and it appears to be a kind of progression. And in one sense it is a progression, right? You don't get to be head teacher. Somebody doesn't like, you know, pick you the day you walk in the door and say, you could be head teacher, although they might. <laughs> um, so I think that to me the, the Jukai um, is part of this uh, aspiration, you know, this kind of commitment that we, we, we want to practice in this way. Um, we make the commitment to sow the rakasu, and we need help to do that. When we, we sow it with other people in our tradition, so you, you, know, you have a different experience of being supported and supporting others when you just by doing that, and it's not about you know, verbal teachings, it's, it's an activity. Um, and then we do this public ceremony um, where the community comes and witnesses our vows and it's very, you know, joyful in my experience. It's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, you join a community, you join a wider community by doing it and you ask for everyone's help and everyone says, yes, I'll help you and will you help me? Um, and sometimes I've spoken to people who have, you know, who, who leave for whatever reason. They come back for something like a, a big ceremony, someone else's jukai, a wedding, a funeral, you know, and there, there they are again, and they feel that connection on some level. And sometimes they come back to practice. Um, it may just be that the commitment, like Norman talks about this commitment in flight, it'd be, I took on too much, you know, I need to pay attention to my family. Um, I think the intensity of the preparation can really consume a lot of people's time and, um, you know, time and energy and attention. And so sometimes you simply have to turn away from that phase of intense commitment back to taking care of everything else. And they're not separate, actually, right? You know, many people wear their rakasu and practice at home. But the flight part to me is also feeling like, oh, I have to hide now because I can't be there. They sometimes won't even talk to their teacher about what's going on. They just feel embarrassed or, you know, something like that. But the vow comes from really deep inside, and people maintain that spark in different ways. Yeah, I don't know if that meets your question, but. Yes, uh, it does. Thank you very much, Charlie. I see some things in the chat. Um, let's see. <laughs> I thought I'd seen that dry spot before. Now it makes sense. <laughs> um, also, Bruce's. Uh, posted a couple of links if anyone is interested. Different stages. Bruce? Well, it's actually a link to, to Norman's talk. Oh, it is. Okay, thank you. Right. So, and, and I double checked it, so it, it should work for you guys if you want to do, if you want to read it now that you've heard about it, um, kind of dive in more. <clears throat> sure, I was, if, if I could continue. Yeah, please. I, I was, um, I was pondering this question of well, why why even say that there are stages, you know, um, because I mean, is it just a Zen thing, right? That there are stages and there aren't stages. Ha ha. <laughs> there's eight. No, there's four. No, there's three. Um, I, I think that's something you just said uh, touched on that as well, right? and, and that comment about oh, I now I understand the dry spot. I, I, I think it's because. Um, well, maybe a couple of different things. One, 
we just have this human inclination to want to make maps, right? To know where we are, to impose some kind of um, order, like, okay, you are here, right? You are, I can just say you are here. You know what I'm talking about because all these places you go to have these maps that literally have those three words and a dot, like at the mall, right? You are here. Like we need to know where we are. We, we want to know where we are. Um, and, and I think that that need or want doesn't go away when you know that there isn't one map or, you know, your, your results may vary, right? <laughs> you know, and, and so I, I think it helps. What it, so, so I think what it does is that it helps normalize on one level, like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one to be going through this. This isn't necessarily a problem or it isn't uniquely my problem. So, whew, okay. And, and that's a help. And, and that's, I think, something not to be, not to be downplayed um, or, or made light of, but that is very useful. Um, but you also said something earlier in your talk that I think is very pertinent as well, which is you, you mentioned the importance of vow and, and the grounding of all of this in vow. And um, I, I, I think maybe it was in Okamura's Living by Vow that I got the, this, this wonderful uh, image of vow as compass. And I think compass, as opposed to map, has a very different sort of, well, orientation, like orienteering. That's what we called it in Boy Scouts, right? When I was learning to use a compass, it's orienteering. It's orienting you to the territory, but it's not necessarily saying we know where everything is and we know where we are. It's more about direction and trust. And so I think things like, like various senses, various schemes of stages are helpful both in just like relaxing, you know, any, any sort of ego-centered concern that what's going wrong, what, what, how am I messing this up? Um, but also in the sense of, well, what do I do if I don't know where I am? Where, where do I go from here, wherever here is? And so I think that that is, um, so, you know, as long as we don't attach to any one particular <laughs> um, scheme of stages, I think it is helpful, but I think ultimately um, it, it just comes down to, to trust, to having some kind of vague sense of direction. Um, and I think maybe that's, that's where the Sangha part of it comes in as well, because we sort of triangulate um, another orienteering term uh, to, to try to get a sense of what's where and where to go. Thank you. Um, you know, there's, there, there are often stories in the news about somebody, some driver usually, who trusted Google Maps and wound up, you know, in an impossible place, like some pass in the mountains way high up where the road ends and it's snowing and it's dark and, and they just kept going, you know, even professional drivers, truck drivers, you know, wind up in these unbelievable places because Google told them to go there or whatever, you know, satellite uh, navigation system they were using. Or right off a pier, you know. <laughs> Um, and so I think that maps can be dangerous. Like if you, th you think you've got to stay on this path and the idea of more like a direction and orienteering, like mm, this doesn't look right. You know, this is not the right way. I need to do this. This feels, you know, appropriate. It's not about, you know, slavishly following. And, and you know, as a, a person, I'm a person who has been through lots of stages professionally where it's really clear what the next thing is and if you don't make it you're out <laughs> you know or you're kicked back 
to a place where you may never, you know, really recover from. So we tend to think, you know, about progress, promotion, demotion, achievements, things we can hold on to, all of these things. And um, that's not what I'm talking about. And I, I think no one here really thinks that I am. Um, but it's really easy to get attached to these attainments and think, I've got, so I got it, I got something. Um, and now I have it. And I'm, you know, aren't I great? And this poor schmo over here doesn't have it, you know. Um, and then when we lose it, we're really undone, right? We really, it's, it really can shake us. And part of this, I think, is also about seeing ourselves in others as we go through this practice, that we, it develops compassion for ourselves and for others, right? Um, I want to make it really clear, though, about this betrayal, you know, the stage of betrayal and disappointment. Um, that isn't just, oh, you need to get over it, you know. There can really be times when uh, it's important to call out a betrayal or not just, you know, your garden variety disappointment with someone, it's good to call it, you know, call it out and, and deal with it to say, what, what, what happened, you know, what happened. But sometimes, you know, there are some really serious incidents that happen and those need to be addressed forthrightly. Um, there can be a lot of harm. So I, I do not want to downplay that at all, uh, just to say, and I'm sure you all know, you know, you all have experience of this. And I will say that some people, friends, Dharma friends, who I felt betrayed by, or who felt betrayed by me in different times and places, have been my greatest teachers. And I hope they have found what happened with us, between us, also to be, you know, something to learn from. Uh, Matthew has his virtual hand raised. Oh, Matthew. Hi. Hello. Can Hello. you hear me? Yes. Hi. Hi, Reverend Toro, and hi, Austin Zen Center. Um, you all might see me as stranger, but I see you as uh, family. I'm from the Brooklyn Zen Center, and uh, um, Reverend Shokuchi, Judy Carrigan, sends her regards to you all, especially to you, Reverend Toro. Thank you. Um, Please let's tell her. Uh, hello from Brooklyn. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. And thank you for your welcoming, welcoming spirit. My question might be kind of a generic question. I might say, what stage are you, Shoro? But you're saying that the stages are simultaneous, spiraling, and overlapping at all times. So I'm so sorry for that yard worker. Um, so at this time, I might ask you, when you're sharing the Dharma, how are you feeling? You, Reverend Toro, the, the mind that is sort of constructing a Dharma to share at this time. Maybe that can like illuminate what stage you're experiencing now. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, what a great question. Um, you know, every time my, I come up in the rotation of talks or invited somewhere to give a talk, you know, virtually invited, it's both, a, a, you know, a little bit of a thrill. It's like, oh, you know, I, I, I uh, can interact with a Sangha in this way. And especially in this time when we don't interact in so many other ways, you know, we, we're not, we're not, we don't see each other still, we're emerging. 
you know, it's been a lifeline for me to be able to have this kind of interaction with people in words. Um, but it's, there's always for me some doubt, like, do I have anything to say <laughs> that's going to be of interest to anyone or help anyone or, you know, and who am I, you know, to offer a Dharma talk? I, I have listened to hundreds or thousands of talks and by all kinds of people. And I, I don't always think that, you know, I'm worthy. <laughs> and I think it's a little bit like, um, if you think you're, you are, then that's a problem. <laughs> but you also have to project a little bit of confidence so that other people, you know, feel like they should listen and maybe there's something to take away from it. So I don't, I, I am not, uh, I don't get the sweaty palms <laughs> uh, so much when I give talks. I was a, I was a, teacher for many decades and you know you just sort of learn to go on and just be on um, but I, I really appreciate the realness of the questions I, I receive or the comments I get which are very different than you know uh, kind of in a classroom situation because it's about us it's about our lives and it's an opportunity for me to learn you know from how my words or what I my topic hits you know how it how it how it resonates or doesn't resonate with people so I I um, think in some ways there's nobody here giving a Dharma talk you know it's like we're co-creating this like we do any ceremony and I've relied very heavily on Norman and other teachers in this talk even more so than usual um, so maybe I'm hiding a little bit with that but I, I do feel that this is for me, it's been helpful, so I'm, I thought it might be helpful for others. So the stage I'm at is kind of all these stages. I have not, uh, let's see, I wouldn't say I'm at the stage of total love. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm trying to allow it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's nice to see you. Anything else? Oh, Ernest. Oh, Ernest, hi, just saw you. Uh, yes, I, I really like the idea of stages, even if it's somewhat deceptive. And, and sometimes I've often thought, well, if we could just do a nice Microsoft project of, of task and dependencies and stick it on the wall, then uh, it would be easier in some way. Uh, and I, I still wonder, you know, well, maybe maybe you could just tell everybody there's these stages. And even though you don't necessarily, maybe there's a small deception involved to keep people moving. Called skillful <laughs> <Yeah>. means. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, that's all I was, uh, that's all I had to say. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, some of you might not have resonated with some of these stages and again he is writing from the perspective of a person who's been doing monastic practice for a long time um, but I do think that the emphasis on how we view our experience these different views of kind of the same thing like why can we how can how is it that it, sometimes we can be with the drama of our lives or in a sangha or something that goes wrong with a teacher or our spouse or whatever. Sometimes we can be with that and let it come up and find a way to respond 
and other times it just completely flips us over. You know, we are capsized, and those and so we we don't always stick in one stage. I think in the classic, you know, some of the classic outlines of practice, there are phases where you don't backslide. The idea is you don't backslide, and I I uh, I'm not sure about that, but I think that that might be the stage or the place where you just keep going. You know, you don't, you, you might get ordained and get drunk and leave the monastery in shame, but <laughs> you, uh, you somehow find your way back. Yeah. Karen, that, that sparked something in Karen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate, um, these thoughts because I feel like it, it, it helps make me feel flexible or something. Um, it feels like, you know, even outside of our specific Zen Sangha, there's such um, kind of images of Zen. And I think um, I can, can uh, be carried away by them as well. You know, what Zen is supposed to look like, what somebody who does Zen is supposed to be like. And many times in my life, it will surprise no one who knows me, um, people outside have, have said to me, oh, you, you don't seem all that Zen. <laughs> um, and and uh, there have even been times when you know I've been really sad or unhappy and and people are like well come on you're a zen practitioner you know go do your zen thing and um, get over it sort of um, that we're supposed to be some way and um, I find it uh sort of grounding, bringing back to know this, this is a process of, of being human and, um, you know, going through different things. And the longer I've been in this, the more I feel like I see that as true, not only in my own life, even in, you know, one year of being on the AZC board, I feel like I've gone through all these stages. <laughs> but um, I have friends in, in Zen who um, have actually been on that harming side of betrayal um, and have left and nobody knew what would happen. Um, and five years later, they were able to come back and they are embraced by the community now and for many years. And so when you have that longer perspective, you can, you can see these things. And it's sort of helpful to know that, I think, if you're somewhere along the path that won't always look like you think it should look like. So I really appreciate the thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I can only say I agree. Um, and that I think that, uh, you know, the, the perspective we get from time, like you said, after five years, you know, in this one case, whether it's from you know someone else coming back, or just our own like relationship to things, I, I've sometimes found that things that were really important to me, that just were like it was, there was real difficulty. It it had a huge impact on me. I was really hurt, and I try to talk to somebody about it years later, and they don't remember it, or they don't remember it the way I remember it. And then you know it 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 was a big lesson for me to learn that you know it's my point of view. And 
hopefully in a relationship, if someone could say, I don't remember, or I didn't, I don't remember it that way. There could be a space where you can hear each other and say something like, I acknowledge you were hurt. It was not my intention, but I acknowledge the impact, you know, that that had um, on you. Um, and that's happened to me many times <laughs> where I had this, was carrying this big thing around and the other person's like, oh, did that happen? Like, what? <laughs> you know, you don't remember that? Um, especially if it happened in the past, you know. So like our reality is kind of challenged and that I think is also what what this is all about, these, these stages, is not clinging to one view of reality and not mistaking our ideas about things for, you know, reality that you know it's all relationship and that includes us with ourselves yeah, yeah thank you thank you for being here <laughs>